So welcome back <laughs> to those who came back. Others had to leave, they told me. Um, so I'm going to introduce you to Teresa Larcina. I'll let her tell you a little more about herself. She is uh, a natural family planning person um, who trains folks in it. And um, she's going to explain to us some about the Billings Method. And I have a lot of questions, so she's going to have a Q&A at... Q&A is at 2.15, so you'll have a 15-minute Q&A period. Is that okay? Good. Thanks, Teresa. Please tell us a little more about yourself. Thank you, Thank you sister. Um, well, I've been married for 32 years. I learned Billings when I was in high school. I was 16 years old. A teacher of the method, it was fairly new in Canada, came to... Uh, our school and at the invitation of a priest in our religion class and um, I thought what the heck are they talking about they were just doing like fertility awareness and I just didn't relate to any of what they said um, but it is all about looking for signs and symptoms of fertility so I went home and I started observing and writing it on a calendar and lo and behold I saw everything that she talked about and so that just fascinated me I was brought up very um, traditionally, shall we say, Catholic by a very devout mother. And so what the church said, the church said, and it was done. And um, so I knew that when I went into marriage, I would not be using any kind of contraception. And so, but people always said that wasn't practical, it wasn't reasonable, it was unrealistic, the church was out of date. And I thought here the science has proven that the church is right. And that this is where science and belief marries together. And so that was really, my, my beliefs were why I practiced natural family planning in my marriage. Um, but it was my fascination with how when you <laughs> dig and look, there is a way. God provides a way. And so that was why I started teaching the method and uh, have been teaching it ever since. Not since I was 16, but after I was married, about four years into my marriage. Um, so I am a, a registered nurse that doesn't really have anything to do with my teaching of the method because um, nursing school never really mentions anything about natural family planning and uh, so that it might have a brief mention in a textbook and that's it it's sort of dismissed and um, I teach nursing to this day and uh, at uh, Centennial College in the Ryerson collaborative program so 32 years married and only one daughter, unfortunately, but um, we've always used the method in our marriage. And so just knowing is a fertility awareness method. It's been very beneficial. There's a bit of a ring. Is that okay? When I get closer, so I stay far away. Okay. All right. So um, I am from, I am a teacher. Okay. Okay. All right. So I am from the Natural Family Planning Association, so I've been teaching with them for many years now. Um, and this is us, and I'm just giving you our address and so on. So these are our offices um, and our websites. Actually, toronto.naturalfamilyplanning.ca is our new website, but buried underneath, if you forget that, naturalfamilyplanning.ca will get you to our site, but it's kind of older. It's the same material, it's just that it doesn't look quite as pretty. We are affiliated 
with the World Organization of Ovulation Method Billings, which is kind of a mouthful, but it's a nice little acronym, WOM, Canada, which in turn is affiliated with WOM International, Melbourne, Australia, because the Billings Method was de uh, developed by Dr. John and then taught by his wife, Dr. Lynn Billings, and um, they were Australians in Melbourne, so that's why our headquarters is in Melbourne. And there are NFP associations or other names across Canada all affiliated with WOOM. It's important just to, I go back to that slide for a minute, it's important just to understand there are many natural family planning methods. Basically all the state-of-the-art, the current, based on current science, they're all based on the same science that ours is based on. But each method has their idiosyncrasies, their way of teaching, uh, their way of keeping record, and so on. And so if you can't mix methods because you get all confused. And that's a really important thing to understand. And um, I actually, I told you I learned Billings as a 16-year-old, but when I got married, I went to a local a women's clinic that said they taught natural family planning, and it was a little different from what I learned. And I thought, well, gee, that's kind of weird, but I, I went along with it. And then it was only later in marriage that I listened to a Billings teacher again and thought, that's what I learned as a girl. And it made so much more sense to me, and I found out afterwards the teacher I went to for my marriage preparation, NFP, was actually mixing methods. So it's very important. That's why I always emphasize that if you don't see the womb registered trademark, it's not our bona fide method. So just a little what is natural family planning. Um, it is really natural fertility regulation in that any method of family planning which is based on the understanding of the physiology of the reproductive tract and the timing of sexual intercourse with reference to the manifestations of fertility. Um, so it is not the same as using a contraception where you are cutting off or avoiding um, natural conception that may, may occur during the sexual act. This is something different. It's timing the sexual act. Okay? And people who come from a contraceptive background of practicing contraception and then they decide that they want to go into natural family planning, sometimes they have a hard time because they think, oh, this is going to be great, it's going to be so natural, I understand this now, maybe they've gone to theology of the body, and then they find out, hey, I just can't have sexual intercourse whenever I want, but avoid the consequence of getting pregnant. And so it, it hits them kind of hard sometimes that there's a responsibility of action when you switch to natural family planning, and that's what sort of makes it this wholesome, whole person approach. Okay. So, um, it is fertility awareness, it's based on that knowledge. There are no drugs involved, no devices or barriers, and there's no interference with the natural act of intercourse, such as the withdrawal method that doesn't use devices or, or uh, drugs, but is it would, there is a matter of withdrawing before the act is complete, so sperm doesn't get into the woman, supposedly, although that's not really true. Um, or condoms, where you have to stop and suddenly put this condom on. So there's no interference in that natural act. It just flows because there, there's no concern with pregnancy, or there is a deliberate desire to become pregnant in the act. Okay. So, ooh, that slides out of order. I don't know what happened there. Okay. So, 
to reiterate, in terms of natural family planning, we have an understanding that male fertility is 24-7, okay? um, after puberty. That female fertility is actually only cyclical, and there's a potential of fertility for about five to seven days in a normal cycle every month. Okay? Um, and it finishes at menopause, so we have a very short window of fertility compared to men. You put the two together, and you get this, oh, sorry. You put the two together and you get that baby picture that I showed you a minute ago. Um, if you don't, can't accept a life, a new life being formed out of your act of sexual intercourse, then you can't put man and woman together physically because that is a natural consequence. And you hear in contraceptive users, they've divided the act of intercourse from fertility and conception, and they're quite surprised if their contraceptive fails and they get pregnant. So my, my cousin once, they got pregnant, and I know nothing about their sexual practices and their choice of contraception, but he said, I can't believe it, I, we don't know what happened. And I'm going, well, I know what happened. <laughs> and, uh, you know, but this sort of attitude that if we're using contraception, we can't possibly get pregnant. NFP users know that that's what leads to pregnancy, and then they make decisions about whether to take the, ac the action that's going to lead, lead to the pregnancy. Okay, methods of natural family planning are divided into two groups. There's the predictors of fertility, like weather predictions. I'm making the point that they're not always accurate. Things can change. There's a big storm coming, and then suddenly the wind shifts and the storm abates. And so in the same way with methods of prediction of fertility, which were the first natural family planning methods, it, it can suddenly change. Your cycle can change one month and be ahead of schedule or behind schedule. Um, so rhythm or calendar methods, anything that counts days in the calendar and says these are your safe days next month and every month, okay, that can't be based on state-of-the-art natural family planning methods. I've, um, I actually Googled the internet before coming here just to get some names of the other methods, and I was surprised how many more there were than since the last time I looked. There's a lot of things popping up now. So this bracelet method, I thought, what the heck is that? And so I looked at it, and it's a calendar method, you're counting days. And a standard dates method, there's different names that pop up. Anything that's counting days is, is rhythm kind of method, and it it um, is based on prediction. Now, methods of observation of signs of fertility. Basically, all of them, look, Billings ovulation method, I put it first. Um, the other ones, like Creighton model fertility care system, um, symptothermal, which adds a thermometer to some observations of the body, but it is also based on the observations in the Billings ovulation method. The two days method and the European double check um, those were new to me. And symptohormonal, where they use symptoms of fertility, but they add an ovulation monitor as well. Okay. And so all of these are based on the science of recognizing the fertile, fertile signs in a woman's body at the time when she's becoming fertile. And then maybe they add some other things on. Okay, so this is Dr. John and Lynn Billings, so I'd like to throw this slide in. Um, so research began in 1953, 
And it was actually at the request of a priest who was counseling women, and some of these women were saying that they were worried about getting pregnant again and that rhythm was not working for them. And the priest asked Dr. John Billings to look into it, to study this matter, and that's how he got onto this track. Um, and uh, it came to Canada in the 70s. So it is a natural way to postpone pregnancy. That was the original intention of the method. Um, it was to find something that was better than rhythm or you know, see if rhythm even worked and also to um, find an alternative for contraception. But we have found that it also helps women achieve pregnancy because you see, it's not a method that does anything to you to change your cycle or anything. It is just helping you learn about your fertility so that you as a couple can make the decision about what you want to do with this fertility. So each and every day, a Billings ovulation method user and her spouse, if he is also reading the chart, can identify, is the woman fertile or not? If she, or has the potential to be fertile. And if there's any potential, then the decision is, if there's no potential, there's no decision. It doesn't matter what they do. Have intercourse, don't have intercourse, you're not gonna get pregnant. But if there is the potential, or there is active signs of fertility there, then you are going to have to decide, do we want to take this out for a spin and see what we can create? Or do we not feel we can accept this great gift? And so we have to turn away from the act that can produce it, abstain from that act. Um, the third, so achieving pregnancy, I'll just address one other thing with that. Um, that They've done a sub-study about this with the Billings ovulation method, and in the group of women who were um, unable to, to get pregnant, in the normal space of time, like medically you're considered infertile or subfertile if you can't get pregnant within a year of having sort of regular sexual intercourse. They had a 65 to 70 percent success rate with those couples. Now, that's when there was no medically identifiable cause of infertility, right? Um, so, you know, with all these fertility clinics popping up, I sometimes want to tell women, like, why don't you just try charting for a year and see, you know, see if we could help you with just identifying your fertility. Now, the third um, thing is monitoring reproductive health. So again, this wasn't the original intention. But as women start to chart and so on, weird things pop up in charts. And so there's, develop, there's a developing knowledge about abnormalities in, in, reproductive, in the reproductive system and even other abnormalities that are underlying the abnormalities of reproduction. So a lot of women who can't um, conceive, there are things um, like metabolic disease, like it's like a precursor to diabetes. And um, for people who have metabolic disease, it will mess up their chart, basically, that they either have difficulty identifying fertile times or they don't have any fertile times and no fertility. And with correction, with medical correction of the underlying metabolic disease, then they, their fertility comes back. Right? Um, thyroid disease for example, will affect fertility, and, and doctors know that, but even suboptimal thyroid can sometimes have an effect on fertility. And uh, when it's still considered to be kind of in the norms, 
and the woman would not necessarily, her doctor would not necessarily prescribe medication to correct, um, but it may be, it may be affecting her fertility. And we had, I, this is just an anecdote, one teacher way back, um, I was told the story about how she identified based on the knowledge of her body from using this method that there was something dreadfully wrong, something seemed really wrong. She was like having fertile signs a lot. Um, when she already seemed to have ovulated, she would have signs again of it coming, you know, and so on. Something was wrong and she went to the doctor and persisted in requesting, you know, further examination about this. Turned out she had cervical cancer. And so she was able to identify that because she knew what was normal and what wasn't normal. So the whole reproductive health picture has really expanded with this method. So the question always is what determines a good family planning method? Um, so these are the kinds of things people say. So Billings is easy to learn. Usually I find that in three or four cycles they really, women are getting confident about it. Right? It depends on the confidence of the woman and, and it depends on how easy her cycle is to read. No drugs or devices, as I've said. No side effects. There is one side effect. Um, in NFP users, which are a small group of people, um, but um, there, have been, there was a study where people, amongst couples who use natural family planning, the divorce rate was about 4% to 6%. So I think this was an American study. But 4% to 6%. So you compare that to the usual divorce rate. So I think that's a side effect. Morally acceptable to all cultures. And um, so, you know, no culture says that you have to be pregnant all the time. But a lot of cultures, and actually even all major traditional English, um, uh, Christian religions, used to say it was a sin to use contraception. It was only recently that they all gave up this, since the 50s. It's really been the 60s and 70s that that idea of contraception not being morally acceptable was flew out the window of most churches and we became, we the Catholics, became the only ones that were still teaching it. And reliability, right? So reliability, people say, oh, I can't do this method because I have irregular cycles. That's not a problem because this is not a method of prediction and does not rely on regularity of your cycles or anything. It is a method of identifying what's going on in your body today, tomorrow, uh, today, and each day as you live it. Okay. Simple to use. Um, we teach our women with paper charts and stamps and stickers, so they have to write on a chart, and then we put these stamps on with different colors. Um, but I, there is a picture on one of our teacher training books that is a string with little twigs on it and a big flower. That's the day of, of ovulation. And it was one tribe in Africa that used that. That's how they kept their, their chart, right? Because they don't have paper and stamps and so on. And um, so those are our only supplies, stamps and paper and a pencil to write with. So effectiveness. Recent trials, the most recent trials, have reported effectiveness greater than 99%. And these were out of, of India and China. So Billings went into China in the days, still sort of, of the one-child policy. And so I think that, um, and they offered to teach, and I read that there are four million Chinese couples using this method. 
Um, the success rates were probably the best anywhere, although there have been some similarly high success rates, greater than 99%. There was one place in China where it's like 100%. And um, you know, somebody in the medical field got really mad at me when I said that in a presentation. It was, I mean, it was 100%. And they said, nothing's 100%. Well, yes, I know, because greater than 99 is very good. But uh, I think these people, when there was a one-child policy, they were very motivated to follow the method exactly, right? And so that would account for a very high rate of success. And this is method effectiveness. So it's not user effectiveness. If somebody says we broke the rules, we don't count that as a failure of the method. That's a, a user failure. So greater than 99%, it's the same as the pill or anything else. And contrasting that, people sort of believe that artificial contraception is 100% accurate. So, you know, you tell that to my client who came after the IUD failed. The second month she had the IUD in and she got pregnant. And she thought, well, here I am kind of compromising my moral beliefs and it didn't work, so I might as well go natural and forget all this drugs and devices and so on. So contraception fails. And before, because I was a nurse, when people said, oh, my contraception failed, I was on the hormonal contraception, the pill, and it, it failed and I kept taking it, I, like a lot of people in the medical profession, thought, yeah, you probably missed a dose and you didn't even realize it. And that's possible. Even missing one day, sometimes people can get pregnant on a pill at the right time. But um, now, knowing that the pill fails about 12% of the time, in a year about 12% of the time, it actually doesn't stop uh, con uh, oh, sorry, ovulation. It actually just, um, it actually allows ovulation to take place. If you read the package, it says that the main purpose or action is to stop the reproductive cycle ovulating. But if that fails, the pill has also stopped the uterus from building up a nice thick lining to receive that new life. And so as the new life can't embed properly, and so it dies. And that's a very early stage abortifacient, about six days after conception. And um, so, so now I realize, having taught this method and, and reading a lot, that um, the pill can fail when you're taking it faithfully. And that's because... The original pills were very, very high doses of hormones, and there were a lot of bad side effects, and women died. Some women died on this pill, usually because of blood clots. The risk of blood clots is still higher than, than on the pill, but than the normal woman without the pill. But it's lower because they keep lowering the doses to reduce the side effects. And that's why now, because of the lower doses, it's easier for the pill to fail sometimes. So. Okay, now these are actually slides I use to try and convince people that it's really easy. Um, so we have here a red stop light, right? So you're kind of all in the back. <laughs> what are you supposed to do when you see a red light? Stop, okay. What are you supposed to do when you see a green light? Go. And the yellow light? Caution. Okay, so forget the caution part, but what do you actually do? You slow down or? Speed up. <laughs> yeah. So this is the only thing. Our, our charts look like this. This is an example of a woman's chart. 
So those numbers are day one of the cycle, that's the first day of bleed, day two, day three, day six, day seven, you know, and so on. And so red is bleeding. But incidentally, the, one of the rules of the method is that during heavy menstruation, you abstain from sexual contact. And so it is stop. Don't do it. The green days are not green for fertility and all that, you know, ecology now, you know, we're talking about being green. But actually, it was actually green for go. And so um, the green days are signs of infertility. But there are some rules around that, kind of like when you come to a four-way crossing, you don't just step on it and go without looking first to make sure the way is clear, even though you have the right of way. Um, similarly, there are rules around that green for go on those days in this particular cycle, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, 10, um, because fertility is coming, so the woman has to watch for fertility. Okay? Um, then we don't have a stops, a, a, a light that has a white light with a baby on it, but what do you think that stamp means? <laughs> Fertility? Yeah, that's the potential. As I said to one woman who kept breaking the rules, I said, I want you to put that stamp on and just meditate on it. Because she said she didn't want to get pregnant, but she kept breaking the rules and having intercourse when it was white stamp days. So, baby, there's a potential there. And all those days, this chart has six days of white stamps with babies. A woman does not ovulate for six days. The day of ovulation is on or in the hours around that last day with the X on it. So that's the day of ovulation, the peak day of fertile signs. But I'll explain in a minute why the woman is fertile for longer than that one day on which ovulation occurs. Ovulation is just an event in the day. It happens spontaneously. But that egg, once it is out, can live for three, up to two days. So that day on this calendar, day 17 and 18, those days are fertile. The woman is already ovulated, but the egg is floating along, right? And in actual fact, an egg is only viable, alive, for a maximum of 24 hours. But as I said, ovulation may not occur on that day 16 in this cycle. It might occur on sometime on day 17. For sure, by the end of day 17, midnight of day 17. So if the egg came out that late, which is unusual, but it could, then the next day, that egg's floating along, happy to meet any sperm and join up with it, right? And so since an egg can only live 24 hours, the end of day 18 at midnight, for sure that egg has to be gone. But we all know about cases where women have twins. And so twins are interesting. They're an abnormality in the, in the maternal world. The incidence of twins increases with age. And it also runs in families, as you know. And there's one town in the States where half the half the population almost is twins. So there's something going on there. So anyway, um, it is possible that there's a second or even three eggs, and um, very unusual. And so if there is a second egg, it must, or any additional eggs must have come out by the end of the second day. And if an egg were to come out that second day, by the end of day 18 on this cycle, then of course, by the end of day 19, it would be gone. 
So there are three days where it's potential that one or more eggs are floating along looking for sperm. And so those three days have babies on them because you're still potentially fertile. The fertility is decreasing. But our method is always based on the conservative and our rules are built to have that 99, greater than 99% effectiveness rate. So there are those three days afterwards. And sorry, then the chart doesn't go on just because we run out of paper. The slide's not wide enough. But after that, day 19, in this cycle, so not day 19 in everybody's cycle, day 19 in this particular woman's cycle, after that, from then on, the rest of the chart, will the woman is non-fertile, completely non-fertile, because all eggs are, are out. So after that, the woman would be documenting still what she sees and feels, which I'm going to talk about. Um, but at that point, it's we know she's past fertility, and she knows she's past fertility. So usually it would be green stamps, but it could also be yellow. And yellow is, remember how some of you told me you would slow down, and some of you said speed up? So it's not a, a matter of deciding what to do on those days, yellow stamp days, that's where my analogy of the traffic lights falls apart. Um, but it's just that it depends upon the woman whether she even uses yellow stamps or not. It's a specific case for each woman. Okay. All right, so the rest of the cycle she'd be non-fertile. Okay, so basically what you saw in that chart I just put into four um, stages here. So we have our menstruation three to eight days. Then we have our pre-ovulation phase. Some women have no pre-ovulation phase. They just go right into fertility. So it's a pre-fertile time. Um, and other women, they have days on end of this pre-fertile time. And so this time pre-fertility, pre-ovulation, this is where if a woman has a long, long cycle, you know, some women say, oh, I only have a period every 35 days. Well, then they, are, they have more of these days of pre-fertility after their menstruation's finished. And maybe they have a longer menstruation. Okay, then one day, a hormone, a chemical messenger in the brain, gets released into the bloodstream, goes around, tickles the ovaries, washes over them, and says, go, start the fertility. And so the ovaries start maturing some of the ovum, or eggs, that are in little follicles. Each egg has its own little follicle. They were all there when we were born. They were there at four months in utero. There's one or two million of them in an unborn child. By birth, there's about four to six hundred thousand, four hundred to six hundred thousand, something like that. And then we only ever lose a few hundred in our lifetime, but by menopause, we only have a few hundred left and the hormones to, to uh, act on them. So in this fertile time, suddenly the ovaries start, produ start maturing several follicles, but one dominates. One becomes the lead and, and the others just never develop or occasionally the second one develops and that's the twin situation. But we end up that one follicle is maturing this egg and it's growing larger and it's moving towards the surface of the ovary and then it's going to burst out and that bursting out of the ovary is the act of ovulation. And then post-ovulation 
um, starts with those three days where one or more eggs might be floating along and continues for 11 to 16 days. And once those three days after ovulation have been counted, that one, two, three after ovulation that you saw there, um, after that, the woman is completely non-fertile. There's no way she can get pregnant during this time. Right? I had one couple who came to me for infertility, and they were very busy, newly married, and had a whole bunch of things that they did together or apart. And so they just never had intercourse except during the non-fertile time, like just when they started charting. And they just never were getting into the fertile time because they were always out. And so, um, you know, just correcting that was what they needed. So in our method, what we're doing is helping women identify those signs and symptoms from her body, in her body, that are signs of fertility. Okay, so just, we're not going to do a lot of anatomy here, but I just put this up to show you about those ovaries with all those little ovum and those little dots there are supposed to be those follicles with undeveloped eggs. Um, and we have the fallopian tube, we have the uterine cavity, um, we have the cervix, which is the mouth of the uterus. It's a, it's a thick muscular ring, the whole uterus is muscle, but it's a thick muscular ring that holds the uterus closed. Now, it's not completely tightly closed all the time. It opens during menstruation. It opens during the fertile time. And it opens wide during labor, right, to let the baby out, okay? Now, that's about all they thought the cervix did prior to some scientists around the time of Dr. Billings. Um, Dr. John Brown was very active, and Dr. Odebla with hormones, uh, knowledge and study of hormones in the reproductive cycle. And there was a Dr. Odeblad, and he's, this, his whole um, area was the cervix. And, and he worked with Dr. Billings. And what they found, what Dr. Odeblad had found is that the, oh, the lining of the cervix, it has these little um, crypts like this. Um, lining the, down the cervix and the lining, that initial uh, lining of those crypts are mucus producing cells. And so Dr. Odeblad, this was his whole work was around these mucus producing cells and the types of mucus. And so one kind of mucus these cells produce is a thick tacky mucus that just fills up that little bit of space and makes it totally impermeable to bacteria to sperm, to anything, and this is during the non-fertile time. So that thick, tacky mucus blocks up the cervix, and the woman, it's during the non-fertile time that the cervix produces all this mucus. Now, when the hormones cause the ovaries to start maturing one or more ovum for ovulation to create this new egg that's going to come out and meet a sperm, hopefully, um, when that is happening, estrogen rises from, estrogen comes from the ovaries as the ovary is maturing the egg, and estrogen levels rise in the bloodstream. Estrogen causes the breast to have some cellular changes in preparation for potential pregnancy. We all know the idea of estrogen increasing the thickness of the lining of the, of the uterus in ready readying it for the potential of new life so this new life can come down to the uterus and embed in the lining and start growing its little placenta, right? 
and that's how that lining is what gives that potential for the embedding of um, the new life and the growth of the placenta. So scientists all knew that, that you know, estrogen causes that buildup of the lining. What scientists didn't know before the 50s was that estrogen also influences the cervix, and the cervix is not just a gateway to the uterus that opens and closes. The cervix actually is part of fertility, and so when the estrogen's rising in the bloodstream, there are five different kinds of mucus that get produced at different as the estrogen rises. And they're kind of like the estrogen gets to a certain level, the flip turns for the flip switch comes on for a particular kind of mucus uh, cells, and they start producing their mucus. And then estrogen gets higher, and another set of cells starts producing its their mucus. And so you get this these different mucuses that are produced as the estrogen rises. And these mucuses are actually part of fertility. And they're also a sign of fertility because as they as the estrogen rises, these mucuses get looser and looser. They're more watery, they're more clear. They're not a thick tacky plug anymore. They're loose and they come out. So with gravity, as a woman is standing, sitting, standing, walking around, these fertile mucuses are coming down through the vagina and out onto the vulva outside the vagina. And so they can be seen coming away from the body on the wipe if a woman is using toilet paper um, after toileting. And, um, And also they can be felt because, of course, they cause a moistness or dampness and or a wetness and eventually a slippery kind of feeling and these sensations for a woman who's trained to think about them i you know think about whether these sensations are occurring um and then also to observe for the mucus um these are the two things that women who do this method and other similar methods where they rely on this mucus production um to identify fertility um, the woman is trained, and that's what she writes on her chart. Very simply, what she sees each day and what she feels. And for the men in the room, I'd just like to say that, you know, we're not taught this by our mothers. I mean, nobody says, think about what your vulva feels like. Okay, they say, don't think about that. Don't look. Okay, so um, this is foreign. I mean, like I say, as a 16-year-old healthy girl, um, I've never seen that mucus there are women who sometimes go to the doctor in a panic because they think they've got an infection because they notice it. Some women have more, some have less, you know. Um, it's not quantity, it's just the quality of it. And the sensation, well, we never think about it. And women worry so much when they learn this method. What if I miss it? What if I'm wrong? What if I felt wrong? But it's just, it's something that you have to train your brain. So it's just, I equate it to toilet training in the sense that, you know, when a little child is old enough to sense the full bladder but doesn't yet know that, and the mother teaches them, you know, to think about it and so on, initially it's hard for them. And sometimes when they're excited, they don't even notice. But then it gets to the point where, as adults, it even wakes us up at night. If we got to go, we got to go, right? And so your brain has a program running in the, all the time, monitoring your bladder. Well, the secretions are never going to wake a woman up at night, okay? But in the day, it doesn't matter what you're doing. When you've trained yourself to always think, do I feel anything? When you do feel something, it triggers you. You could be in the middle of a presentation and it's like, oh, I feel that. You know, and so you would think, okay, I've got to write that down on my chart tonight. 
Right. And similarly, just every time a woman toilets, no special extras, um, you know, just to observe if there is any discharge. And this is all external. It's just normal, kind of just an observation. Um, and for us, because we use toilet paper, some cultures don't, right? So then they're observing just in terms of what's coming away from the body. But for us, it's typically on the wipe when we toilet that we will see this. We stop and look just to see if there's any mucus. So this mucus coming out is a sign that estrogen's rising and egg is getting prepared to ovulate, okay? So it's a sign of our fertility and a sign that ovulation's coming. But the actual presence of the mucus itself enhances the traveling of the sperm. So during the non-fertile time when the cervix is completely plugged with that thick tacky mucus and there's no fertility happening, sperm gets into the vagina but it only lives approximately 60 to 90 minutes in the acidity of the vagina and it can't get up through the cervix any higher. So it dies. So during the non-fertile time the woman's body does not support the life of sperm. During the fertile time when an egg is being prepared to ovulate and the woman's um, cervix are starting to produce these fertile kinds of mucus, sperm can swim into that mucus and initially the mucus has still got a consistency that it hangs onto the sperm and traps it like fish or dolphins in a net and holds it in those crypts and nourishes it and keeps it alive in the perfect pH balance and the temperature of the body. And sperm in that fertile mucus can live three to five days. And so, remember that chart with several days of white stamps with babies on? Those were all the days the woman saw or felt, and either and both observations are equally fertile, saw and felt signs of discharge. And so, Every day that there's discharge, there's a potential to keep sperm alive three to five days. And so if that sperm is alive three to five days in that fertile mucus, then when ovulation occurs, that sperm is still there. And when the mucus gets to the very clear and stringy, like raw egg white kind of consistency, it lets go of the sperm. It's no longer acting like a net and the sperm swims straight up goes up inside the uterus and goes into the fallopian tubes and sits there or goes looking for the egg and is waiting there if the egg is released. Right. So the secretions of the cervix are both a sign of ovulation coming but also actually part of the fertility of a woman. Okay, so there are signs of fertility that you know, are common to all and modern state-of-the-art NFP methods. Sensation of the discharge felt at the vulva, observation of the discharge. Now, some methods emphasize more of the observation and not much about the sensation. But Dr. Billings and his researchers discovered that it's very much sensation as well as observation. So even if a woman doesn't see anything, if she feels any kind of dampness, wet, moisture, um, or slipperiness of that very stringy mucus right before ovulation or shortly before ovulation, then um, she knows she still has fertility, even if she doesn't see something. So it's very important because some women just fixate on what they see, not what they feel. And we really emphasize sensation in our method as much as observation. 
Now you'll see I grayed out the other ones. There's temperature rise because it's true after most times after ovulation, temperature does rise. Um, and that's a sign if temperature rises and stays above a baseline temperature that, that uh, was before. We don't use temperature. In the early days, Dr. Billings asked his um, patients to record temperature as well because it was one of the documented signs of fertility, of ovulation having occurred. But the women said, we can see it all in our discharge. Why do we have to keep taking temperatures? Imagine for the rest of your life waking up every morning, even if you've got a crying baby in the other room, and taking your temperature for five minutes before you get up because that's how you have to do it. And if you drink, it alters your temperature. If you go to bed late, it alters your temperature. If you get sick, it alters your temperature. So um, the Billings method, we just rely it's very successfully on observation of discharge and sensation of it. Forget the temperatures because it isn't realistic for the rest of your life. It doesn't work in menopause or breastfeeding when you've got long periods of time with no ovulation occurring and you're waiting for months for that temperature to rise so you can confirm ovulation and have sexual intercourse without getting pregnant. It doesn't work. Okay, it doesn't work with life. Um, and there is like um, symptothermal methods. Sometimes they have women doing internal exams and so on. And Dr. Billings is very, you know, like, let's keep this natural. Just normal life. We can see it all in the discharge and the sensation felt at the vulva. There's no, nothing medical, no exams or anything like that. Okay. Okay, so there's four rules in our method. There's three early day rules and one peak rule. I'm not really going to go over the rules. I'm just going to explain that there are a total of four rules. Very simple. Um, the early days are the days prior to fertility um, and uh, up to ovulation. And so in these early days, there's a rule about menstruation, which is basically you can't have intercourse during menstruation because we're always watching for the beginning of the fertile phase, watching for the appearance of discharge and the sensation it causes. How can a woman do that when she's menstruating? She's feeling wet with the menstruation and she's got bleeding, so she's not going to see any signs of fertility if they were to start that early, and they can. So... Um, Contrary to popular belief, you can get pregnant when you're menstruating. It's not as common, but you can. Then during this pre-ovulation phase, the rules are around um, keeping, observing for the beginning of the fertile signs. So there's some rules about the frequency of intercourse um, so that there's some, some time in there without intercourse happening where you can observe for the signs of fertility. So basically intercourse is every other evening is allowed at this time so that there's a day in between where you can observe and see if the fertile signs have started yet or not. During the fertile phase, the rule is, if you have any signs of fertility, total abstinence. And abstinence, again, in our, our um, culture now, abstinence doesn't mean just no sexual intercourse. It means no sexual contact. And sometimes people don't realize that, that that's what that means. That total abstinence means no sexual intercourse. Uh, sorry, no sexual contact at all. I have a client once who did get pregnant. And when we discussed any issue, any possibility of how this could have happened, she admitted that they had some sexual contact, but they hadn't actually sort of finished the whole act of sexual intercourse, he'd withdrawn or whatever. And so that got her pregnant, right? So um, 
nowadays people do a lot of things and think, okay, as long as we don't actually have penetration, then we don't have sexual intercourse. Okay, post-ovulation is the peak rule. When we have identified peak, meaning ovulation has occurred, then after those one, two, three days where one or more eggs is floating along, from then on, intercourse can be, is available and can be engaged in any time, morning, noon, and night, and as much as a couple likes, they can't get pregnant. They cannot get pregnant because post-peak and one, two, three days at, right after peak, after that, there is no fertility for the rest of the cycle. Okay, so I'm not going into all the details of how to chart and what you're looking for exactly, but you get the general idea. Um, so observations are made at the vulva as the woman goes about her normal daily activities. There's no internal exam. We make that point because people will go on the internet and Google everything, and if they read about that in another method, they might start doing it, and that's not our method, right? And um, apart from the hygiene and so on of internal exams um, and you know possible irritation and so on, if, if that's happening, then there might be, of course, inside like anywhere inside our bodies, it's damp, it's moist. So there gets to be a lot of confusion about what exactly am I looking for, you know, so we don't like them to do that. Most fertile characteristics of, the most fertile characteristic of the day is recorded each evening. So at the end of the day, the woman looks back and says, what, did I have any fertile signs? What did I feel? Was there anything more than just nothing? And what did I see? Was there anything other than nothing? And um, if there was, the one or two words are used to describe what they saw and or felt. And that's it. And then they look at it and say, okay, what stamp is it? Is it red? Is it green? Is it white with a baby? Is it yellow? Okay, so all you need are accurate observations after learning it, learning the method, accurate charting, motivation to do it and to do it daily, and loving cooperation, not the man saying, what? You've got that fertile mucus again? It's like, that's how God made me. Right? <laughs> we are programmed to get pregnant. Go forth and multiply, right? We do it every month. We have fertility from 12 kind of age. And we are just programmed. And guess what? During the fertile time, a woman's hormones tends to make her more interested, more sensitive and um, to touch and so on. And we're programmed to go forth and multiply. Okay, so it's accurate, it's scientific, it's backed up by a ton of research. It's simple, just two observations. Write it down every day, stamp the chart just to remind you what it means and then follow the rules. And even if a woman her cycle is all over the place and she's not ovulating in a normal cycle and she doesn't know what's going on, as long as she follows the rules, the rules just say, if you have discharge, this is what you do. You know, like, So it's very simple. They're very simple rules and you can follow them even if you don't know what is going on in your cycle right now. So for example, the breastfeeding woman, initially she has no fertility and as she breastfeeds, as the baby gets grows and gets bigger and bigger, um, fertility eventually is going to come back. Some women it comes back almost immediately, even though they're breastfeeding. But the majority of women it's delayed. And so the woman just keeps monitoring and watching. And we have, it's the same rules, um, but it's just how we treat it. And that's where those 
individual sort of um, yellow stamps. They're, it's very individual how those yellow stamps are used. So that's something that she needs to consult probably with the teacher again um, if a woman is breastfeeding for the first time. So it can be done with breastfeeding. Menopause is another time where there's a lot of uncertainty you know, about what's going on in the cycle. But as long as a woman follows the rules, it can, you, she can still use this method successfully. I had a woman who came to me once and she had used calendar method very successfully her whole married life and uh, never had an unwanted pregnancy and, um, and so she thought that was great. And she talked to one of our teachers because she's going into menopause and the teacher warned her. She said, if your cycles go irregular, that calendar method isn't going to work for you anymore. So she came to me and I explained the method and so on and she went away and charted. And she came back the next, uh, in two weeks, and um, she says, I don't know, I don't know what's going on. It, like, I can't figure this out. So we, we went over the chart and then sent, and she goes, oh, she went away. She came back in a month's time and with all the rules, you know, she knew what to do. But she came back and she says, I don't get it because of blah, 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 blah. And we went over the chart and we sorted it out and it was like, oh, okay. And then after that, she was all right. She came back for another uh, um, meeting, consultation with me. And she says, I have to tell you something. She says, I've been keeping my calendar chart on the side, as well as this one. And the last two months, when you told me I ovulated, and when it was, I was no longer fertile, it matched the calendar of my calendar method. And so she says, so, you know, I thought, mm, you know, like, why do I need to observe for this? I can just count days. She says, this month, you're telling me here is when I ovulated. And I'm going, yes. She goes, my calendar method says I'm safe and I'm unfertile, infertile on, the, on this day of ovulation. And she says, I'd be pregnant now. And so that was it. The calendar method was gone and she was a, an advocate now of uh, Billings and a believer in it. Okay, so it increases knowledge, understanding, and respect for fertility. The, the engaged couples who come to see me, I do get married couples occasionally, but the majority of my clients are, are engaged couples. And when they come, most times the women, the women and men, the engaged couple fiancés, come together, right? So there'll be the woman and the man, and the woman's doing all the talking about what she's putting on the chart and why and so on. Um, but the guys, they're so interested. And of course, when you get married and you're offspring depends upon reading this chart accurately um, the guys are really into it right and what's really neat about it is although I would have been too shy as a young bride to share with my husband what I was seeing and feeling I just wasn't comfortable with that but they do and what's really interesting is that you can see their faces lighting up they're so excited and they're thinking about the prospect that we could create life and they're also very concerned about doing it accurately so that they don't create life when they're not prepared to accept that. And it's very interesting. It's a real, you can see the coupleness in it. And most husbands who do this method, they keep the chart as in they write it down. So she reports and they write it down. So then nobody's blaming anybody if, if there's a mistake and they misread the chart or something, they're looking at it together. He wrote it down, and they were presumably both there when they stamped the chart and decided what it meant. It's not her secret, something she does on the side and then 
tells him whether they can or can't have intercourse. They as a couple are approaching this together, identifying together their fertility. Because remember, without the man, the woman can't get pregnant. So it's a couple fertility. And they're doing it together. And so there's that real coupleness. And it increases the communication and the awareness. And then the men understand better when they see these hormones going up and down and they recognize emotional response in their wife. And they realize this really is like these emotions, you know, the, the easy to get into a rage kind of thing or the, you know, the time where they seem so placid and happy. And, you know, they realize, they see it in the chart that it matches the chart. And so I think it gives them a great appreciation for what women go through. And uh, because men, men's hormones, flat, flat line, right? So they don't understand these emotions. And so just seeing that potential for life that you could create at any time. And it makes the men realize like, wow, like this is what's going to happen if we break the rules, you know? So it's very interesting to see that coupleness in the method. Joint responsibility. So I've already addressed that it's a joint responsibility. And it does no harm. So I always say to the married couples, uh, the engaged couples when they come, I said, you know, people say, you know, sexual intercourse should be an act of love, right? And um, they say, well, yeah, but what's unloving about contraception? If she wants to take the pill, it's she wants to do it, it's easy for her. Um, it eliminates any concerns, which again, it's not a hundred percent, but they think it's a hundred percent because it's a drug. And, uh, so what's wrong with that? She made the choice and what's unloving about that. And I always say, I want you to turn, look your fiance or your wife when you get married in the eyes and say, honey, I know this pill that you're taking so that we can have intercourse whenever we want can increase the risk of three different kinds of cancer. Liver cancer, cervical cancer, breast cancer. It increases by two and a half times the risk of clots. It can make you obese and depressed and a whole long list of side effects. But honey, it's worth it. Is that loving? I don't think so. Right. So that in itself is my answer for, for why contraception is not loving. And then, of course, it gets you into this attitude that the power for life, the power for life is we control it and there's no giving, right? So I think everybody appreciates that their parents didn't contracept, otherwise they wouldn't be here. Okay, so that's it. Develops couple communication relationships. So I've gone over time, um, but this is my last slide. So to attend a presentation um, that outlines the method and to learn the details, okay, of how to do the charting. Um, you purchase a chart for $5 and it gives you stamps and a chart that will last you for about five cycles. So it's about 10 or $11 a year. Um, making Follow-up appointments are made on an individual basis with the um, teacher. Uh, the first one we say you make two weeks after you've learned charting and we send you home with, uh, with the agreement that you'll abstain for the whole two weeks so that you can just chart and be comfortable and not worry about getting pregnant in those two weeks. And then after that, we make appointments according to the need of the couple based on the chart and the woman, the couple's understanding of the method. And uh, that's it. So, questions? Yes. Yes. Can you go back to the slide with the chart on it? Mm-hmm. I just had a question about the first 
Yes, or signs of fertility. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The first green is a time period where the hormones are at rest. So usually, most people, uh, many people, um, after menstruation, there's a resting time where the estrogen is just, you know, the hormones are low level baseline and nothing's happening. So there's no fertility. Okay. But um, when a couple learns how to, you know, all the rules of the, me- the four rules of the method, the rule in there is that they have to restrict their intercourse to the evenings and every other evening. So um, if they have intercourse like Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, for example, in a week, Tuesday and Thursday, they restrict themselves from any intercourse so they can observe whether those signs of fertility are starting or not. Okay? So there are some restrictions about it, even though those are non-fertile days. Okay? But we were living it. You know, when we were charting, it's day by day. So even though they're non-fertile on one day there, if they um, have intercourse that, e- they can have intercourse in the evening after determining the woman is not fertile that day. But then the next day they wait and don't have intercourse day or evening to observe and see whether any signs of fertility are appearing. And so then the next day, they, the woman observes all day, and if there's no signs of fertility, then they can confidently have intercourse that evening and say that, saying that, okay, there's no signs of fertility yet, so we're, you're still infertile. And then the next day, they would abstain totally, and the next day, if there's no signs of fertility, they could have intercourse that evening. So it's an every other evening intercourse is available if there's continued no signs of fertility. Welcome. And that can be a longer or shorter period of time, and some people don't have any of that. They go straight into fertility every cycle. They have short cycles. Yes? I just have a question. What are the black dots? Oh, that's at the end of the oh. menstruation, the spotting. You oh. know, sometimes, like, it doesn't sort of just turn off. Yeah. It, you know, you'll have spotting or, you know, and so we indicate it with spotting. With spots, we literally put them on the stamps. Yeah, we have two apps. Um, well, we don't. I don't. I don't know who does the other one. One of them is actually on the womb website, the World Organization website, and it's called Fertility Pinpoint. Um, and the other one is NFP Charting Online. So it's www.nfpcharting.com, and. Um, both of those apps are billings friendly. All the other fertility apps are based on the calendar method. You chart your cycle. It gives you, some of them give you some of those discharge descriptions, but it will predict when you are going to ovulate. They're all predictive, all those other ones. Um, Billings is very insistent that the woman calls it whatever she sees. Some methods, they say you have to call it this, 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 or this. And um, what if it's not one of those? You know, your, your cervical discharge can have many different appearances. Everyone's different. So you can't memorize a list and say, okay, I'm two days away from ovulation because I got this kind of mucus. It doesn't work like that, okay? What if your body gets put off or, you know? So um, with these two charts, the Fertility Pinpoint and NFP charting online, um, they basically have an empty template there and you just click on the day and it says do you want to write something in and up pops the thing and you write in what you saw you describe it what you felt describe it and then it says do you want a stamp and it gives you all the different colors of stamp the red the green 
the red with the dots, the white with the baby, and the yellow. And there's a yellow with a baby. And you just click on it and you put the stamp on there and it's done for the day. And so one of them, the uh, NFP Online, is a downloadable app. So you can use it on your phone. And then if you go anytime you're on Wi-Fi or, you know, you put your data on, it will sync again online. And I think the other one is not downloadable um, unless they've changed it. It's only in the cloud. So you have to be online to chart. And the neat thing about this is that then you can click the button. If you put your teacher's name and email in, you can just click the button and send it to your teacher. And they, I get an email that pops up and says, somebody wants you to look at their chart. So I go to it and their chart will pick up. So they don't send me the chart. They just send me a notification. So it's very confidential and can't be hacked. And um, so I go to the chart and it pops up and, and uh, then I can look at it and I can write comments back and so on. Yes. Does the PIL and other forms of like IUDs and whatnot, does that interfere and change a woman's menstrual cycle? Um, the PIL, any hormonal contraception, so the PIL, the patch, the implants, um, IUDs, some come with hormones on them and some don't. Okay, so some are impregnated with a hormone and some aren't. So anything where you get hormone, hormones, whether they're absorbed through the skin, through the, um, through the uterine wall, um, or they are a pill that you ingest, or injections too, um, all of those are taking over the menstrual cycle. They are shutting it down, basically, the natural cycle. And so whatever, whatever way you're getting the hormones, it's giving you, well, if it's just like straight progesterone, it's shutting it down totally. Um, if it's the hormonal pill, there'll be two or three hormones in it. And so you're, if you take it in order around the, usually they're circles, and you take it in order around the month, and the last so many pills are usually a sugar pill for the few remaining days. So that's when women get a bleed, but it's very light bleed compared to normal because the pill has not allowed the lining to build up. It's just given you a bit of a cycle, but not enough to ovulate. And any artificial hormones always take over the body. So if the body senses these, this estrogen um, from the pill, then it doesn't produce its normal hormones. So it's sort of like it takes over. And it artificially creates a cycle, but an incomplete cycle because you never go to ovulation. So afterwards, it doesn't just affect your cycle at the time, which is basically shutting down your natural cycle and just making your body, you know, making your ovaries do things. Um, it also, because it's impacting on the normal um, hormones, the natural hormones, and their artificial hormones in these pills, um, which are stronger, um, they impact on the cervix the cervix of women after, and the ovaries actually, but the cervix of women who come off the pill, it ages it. And the fertility doesn't always come back right away. Um, it can really affect that fertility and cause infertility after a woman comes off the pill. Um, most women who come to me who've been on the pill, they do not have normal um, looking cervical discharge for the first few months. Um, they say the pill can, the effects of the pill can last for up to two years. I find that most clients, it's four or five, six months that you'll see this um, very hard to rechart. And then you can see it starting to clear up 
and become that more normal, okay, I've got my bleeding, I've got my days of no discharge, no sensations, and then my fertile signs start and I'm clearly going to ovulation. But often at first they're not going to ovulation right away. So it impacts at the time you're taking it, it's totally controlling your reproduction. Um, afterwards, it has had a negative effect on your fertility that lasts for some time. Does that answer the question? Yeah. Yeah. I have a question about a woman who are in perimenopause and menopause. Because if their cycle varies so much, like one month it could be on, or for a couple of months it could be on a 25-day cycle, where they're having a period every 25 days. So that means yeah. that the cycles are short and it'll come more often. Right? Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden, um, they can have a 40 day. Yes, or longer. Or longer. Yes. Because um, officially a person's not in menopause until one calendar year, right? Uh, yeah, if there's, by medical definition, if you haven't had a bleed in one calendar year, then you have, yeah. you're, you've gone through menopause. So then how does one try to try to measure, I uh, try to uh, determine because um, there'll be some months where they won't have that gap between menstruation and when they're fertile and some they will have a big gap. long gap, right? Or no gap at all sometimes. Yeah. What happens is this will stretch out. It'll be for days, weeks. Oh. Right? If it goes into 40, well, yeah. yeah, of course, because it'd be the whole yeah. year. Yeah. And so if that's stretching out all this time before anything starts, right? Um, then if, if they're dry nothing, they feel dry, they see nothing every day, well, they just use the rule every other day, always watching for the signs of fertility to appear, mm -hmm. but they can have intercourse every other day. So you could go for three months every other day. That's not bad. It's 45 days, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. So it's every other day. They just, they follow the same rules. Mm -hmm. Just keep, you know, watching that every other day rule allows for a day in between each active intercourse where you can watch and see if there's any fertile signs coming. And if there's no fertile signs, you're still in this basic infertile pattern. Mm -hmm. And so they continue like that. And if they start to see fertile signs, well then they know to abstain. And they'll abstain until they go away. And sometimes people have fertile signs and it doesn't achieve ovulation but we can tell by the pattern of these fertile signs, we can't pick a peak. We never, you know, a woman might not see that peak sign, not because it's, she missed it, but because it's not there. And that means she didn't ovulate. So we can tell whether we have a confirmed ovulation or not. And so if that happens, then the woman still counts the one, two, three, just in case, because we're, nature has a way of getting around us. So there's always a possibility. What if she did ovulate? but we're pretty sure she didn't. And so we count the one, two, three, and then, but there's no peak. And so then she goes back to every other day, watching and waiting, looking for fertile signs again, because at some point her body's gonna try again and go to peak and ovulate. So then that can also measure for a person who's, um, who lives a celibate, like, could actually measure when time for that person, sorry, I forgot how to pronounce Yeah, for like a person, just for their own health, when they're going to become into the changes as well. Yes. Obviously without the... Yes, yeah. That's what I meant. Yeah, yeah. 
So yes, when they're perimenopausal, they'll start to see changes. They'll see changes around here too. You know, it's shorter, it's longer, the, this, the mucus is more or less, you know, it depends on the woman what's happening. Just like they see the bleeding sometimes gets heavier and then some months it's really light, and, you know, they see a lot of changes in their cycle, right? So, you know how we're saying that if it stretches out and then it, then they have the patch of fertility, maybe they do ovulate, maybe they don't. And maybe then they go to a bleed. So maybe it was just a subnormal ovulation. Maybe they didn't ovulate at all, and then the, but there was some lining built up, so it bleeds off. But then one time, that stretching out just never stops. And a year later, they still haven't had anything. They've, they've gone through menopause. They're finished. Like I am. <laughs> Thank you so much. Uh, yes, big round of applause. So I learned so much. Oh my gosh, don't you think like we should be talking to teens about this? Right? Um, so just I want to say two quick things. One is that um, I had mentioned about the thermometer method, which I guess is not that great, right? We should go with the Billings method. Don't worry about taking your temperature. The second thing is, um, and Teresa had explained this to me, that um, you know, having sex while you're engaged is not okay. Right, we, we know this, right? But thanks be to God, they are coming to learn NFP and they're heading towards marriage. So just, just to put that little aside there that we are not putting an approval on sex before marriage here. <laughs> you know, even if you're engaged, <laughs> engagements are made to be broken <laughs> and you have not received your sacrament yet of marriage. So um, just, just to clarify that, because this is going all over the world. Um, Right. So thank you so much. We're going to take a really quick break because I, is that Maria and Elber back there? Hi guys. They're going to be our first testimony at, um, oh, let's see at, can you start in 10 minutes? Is that good? Okay, perfect. So we'll at five to three, we'll have our first testimony. Thank you. Thanks, Teresa. That was amazing.